ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode 21 of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. Hope you're all doing great. Today we're going to talk about the first films I've seen during the month of September. However, I want to start talking about some film news first. Last week, the Academy announced some adjustments to the legibility of future Best Picture nominees for the Oscars. The changes, which are meant to promote diversity and inclusion in the industry, are separated in four standards labeled A, B, C, and D, and aspiring films will have to comply with at least two of those. It can be A and B, or A and C, or B and D, whatever. The standards go from having a cast and or crew members from certain minorities to ensuring that studios provide paid internships and apprenticeships to people from underrepresented groups. As it's expected, the announcement was met with polarizing and politicized reactions, with some supporters favoring it and others labeling it as a start or a step in the right direction, while on the other hand, its detractors denounce it as nonsense, too strict, or as reverse racism for forcing filmmakers and studios to hire people just based on their race or ethnicity. Overall, I support the move, and I'll tell you why. First of all, I don't think the requirements are as strict as some people make it be. I've read countless of people from all walks of life, from regular people on film Twitter to James freaking Woods arguing how films like Saving Private Ryan or The Godfather wouldn't be eligible. Uh, first of all, the new standards aren't meant to be applied retroactively, so it obviously has no bearing on past winners. The Hollywood of today is not the Hollywood of 20, 50 or 80 years ago and these new standards are for the Hollywood of now and the Hollywood of tomorrow. Second, most people, including Mr. Woods, who conveniently tweeted his displeasure along with a screenshot of only standard A, well, most people are fixating merely on that standard A, which is the one that says that aspiring films have to feature a minority lead or sporting actor or a minority crew member like the director, writer, or deal with subject matters centered on underrepresented groups. But the thing is that, first, the film only needs to comply with one of those substandards within standard A, which are labeled A1, A2, and A3. So if you have a notable supporting actor from a minority, then your subject matter doesn't need to be from underrepresented group. Or if your leads are from a minority, then it doesn't matter if your supporting cast is all white. In addition, you only need to apply to two of the four standards I mentioned before. So if the film doesn't have a minority actors, crew members, or its subject matter isn't centered in underrepresented group, which is all standard A, the film can still be eligible by complying with two of the other three standards, B, C, or D. Standard B is more focused on minority representation among crew members. Standard C asks studios to provide paid internship and apprenticeship to minorities. And Standard D has to do with minorities within the studio structure, specifically in marketing, distribution, whatever. And if you want to look retroactively just for fun, one quick look at past Best Picture winners would prove that a lot of the films that have won in the past actually comply with Standard A. For example, a lot of recent winners obviously comply Moonlight, Green Book, Parasite, The Shape of Water, uh, 12 Years a Slave, Slumdog Millionaire, all of those, they comply with Standards A1 and or A2. If we keep going back, uh, Unforgiven, The Last Emperor, Dances with Wolves, Rocky, In the Heat of the Night, obviously, West Side Story, even Gone with the Wind complies with Standard A1 by having one notable black supporting actress in Hattie McDaniel. And that's without looking at Standards B, C, or D, which all these films could also have complied with. 
Finally, a lot of people are questioning the motivations of the academy, but even if I were to do that, I agree with those that have said that at least it's something. So let's hope that this change ends up being positive and results in better representation both on screen and behind the screen. So anyway, like I said at first, today we're going to talk about the films that I saw on the first half of September. So let's go. A film from the 1980s. If the horned king should find it, nothing could stand against him. For this category, I chose Disney's The Black Cauldron, which was released in 1984. It is set in the Middle Ages and follows Taran, a young swineherd that has to stop the evil horned king from obtaining a magical cauldron that will help him take over the world. Taran is joined in his journey by Princess Elongui, a colorful bard, and a hairy creature named Gurgi. The film is notable, or perhaps notorious, first for being Disney's first PG-rated film, and second for being the most expensive animated film at the time. It had a budget that ranged between $25 and $44 million, and unfortunately it ended up grossing only $21 million domestically. Because of this failure, the film wasn't even released on video until 1998. Being a kid in the 80s, I remember being intrigued by the trailer. I mean, it looked really cool and dark, but I never got to see it. Then it was not available in video for more than a decade, so most of what I heard about it was about its lukewarm reception and failed box office. However, in recent years, I've often seen people on social media reevaluating the film and arguing that it deserved a better reception. So I thought it would be cool to finally check it out and decide for myself. Having seen it now, I agree with that general modern perception. It wasn't that bad, certainly not as bad as its reputation might lead you to think. Yes, the story is a bit derivative, particularly now that everybody knows about Lord of the Rings, because it borrows a lot from that lore, but it's still thrilling and even somewhat scary. The Horned King and his army are pretty cool, and probably unlike anything Disney had done to this point. As for the lead characters, they are a bit thin, but I suppose that's usual in children's films. I do think the film lacked a certain something, a certain charm. The way the story is built, it seems that the directors were counting on Gurgi being seen as a cute character, but I found him annoying, which kind of hinders a climatic moment in the film. Overall, it's mid-tier Disney, but still might be worth a watch for fans of the studio or fans of medieval and adventure stories. A film based on a comic book. So dumb. What? I mean, smart as a whip. Just a sucker. So now all your friends have to die. <laughs> it's easy to fool people when they're already fooling themselves. Chose this category because of National Comic Book Day, which is September 25, and in an effort to catch up with the MCU, I saw Spider-Man Far From Home. This is the only film from the MCU that I hadn't seen, well, that and The Incredible Hulk, but anyway, it is the 23rd film within the MCU, and the final film in what they call their Phase 3 and the Infinity Saga. It follows Peter Parker, played by Tom Holland, as he heads on a school trip to Europe while still trying to cope with the events of Endgame, as he is pursued by Nick Fury, played by Samuel Jackson, to take a more upfront role in the superhero world. Peter finds himself longing for a normal teenage life instead, which includes pursuing a relationship with MJ, played by Zendaya. 
All of that is interrupted when otherworldly creatures called the Elementals start creating havoc, while a mysterious character dubbed <coughs> Mysterio, played by Jake Gyllenhaal, appears. This was okay, I guess. It was somewhat entertaining, but not particularly memorable. I like Holland a lot as Parker, and I kind of like the moments where we see him trying to deal with real-life teenage issues and insecurities, but as far as the superhero stuff, it doesn't stand out. It more or less follows the same beats than other formulaic MCU films. Even the Mysterio twist is not much of a twist, because most people with Spider-Man knowledge know that he's a bad guy. As for the other twist, well, uh, I'm gonna discuss a spoiler, so if you haven't seen the films, keep ahead a few seconds. So, the whole Mysterio thing being a ruse, and how it was linked to various characters from previous MCU films, well, it felt a bit far-fetched, while also a bit borrowed from the Mandarin stuff in Adam and Tree, in terms of having a fake villain. I mean, it's not exactly the same, but I guess it just didn't work that well for me. For what it's worth, Gyllenhaal still sold it as well as he could, I thought he was great, but I don't know, something just didn't click with me. Another thing is that the CGI wasn't very good, and there was a lot of CGI in this film, and it kinda took the air out of the action set pieces. Despite that, the film is not boring, I had fun watching it at least while it lasted, it just lacks a bit of a punch. A film with the number 9 in its title. <laughs> Giordani! Hi, Spimmy. Hi. Hi. Let's get this over with, so maybe you'll clear out and leave us in peace. 10.15 p.m. Dr. Monero reported it. He was on the first night shift. Our man half-killed a watchman, Jimmy the window, and then ran off without taking anything. Not a test tube, not a piece of paper, nothing. Not even a paper clip. For this category, I saw The Cat on Nine Tails, Dario Argento's second feature film. It is the middle entry in his so-called Animal Trilogy, along with his first film, The Bird with the Crystal Plumage, and Four Flies on Grey Velvet. The film follows Arno, played by Carl Malden, a middle-aged blind man that pairs with a reporter, played by James Franciscus, to investigate a series of murders. Even though it is part of this animal trilogy from Argento, the title doesn't refer to the tales of a literal cat, but rather to the nine leads that our characters are trying to follow to solve the murders. This is me dipping my toes on both Argento's filmography and the giallo subgenre, of which I've seen roughly a handful. However, this one feels a bit more straightforward and lacks that distinctive visual style from the few Argento or Giallo films I've seen, like Suspiria or Deep Red. It is said that Argento was not pleased with the film and considered it his worst. Regardless, I found the plot to be intriguing and well executed. There are some genuinely tense moments and the performances, particularly Malden and Franciscus, are solid. One curious thing for me is the reasoning for making Arno a blind man, when that trait ultimately has no relevance to the plot. As it is, I find it at times cool that we have this middle-aged blind man keeping up with the younger reporter, jumping fences and sneaking into buildings, but at times it's also a bit distracting in terms of how grounded and believable everything feels. The plot does get a bit too unfocused at times with its nine tails or leads, but it still ends up being quite entertaining and worth a watch.
A film from the 1001 movies you must see before you die list whose ranking includes the number 9. Now remember Pinocchio, be a good boy and always let your conscience be your guide. Goodbye, my lady. Disney's Pinocchio is one of those films that one probably knows all about, even if one hasn't seen it properly, but let's follow through anyway. The film, which was released in 1940, follows Geppetto, an old carpenter that creates the titular wooden puppet, only to have it brought to life by the Blue Fairy. As Pinocchio starts to get accustomed to his new surroundings, he has to learn to avoid temptations from shady characters with the help of his conscience, Jiminy Cricket. This was Disney's second feature film after Snow White, and even though it received critical acclaim and was nominated for several awards, it ended up being a box office bomb, probably because of World War II and the inability to get into European and Asian markets because of that, but after being reissued in 1945, it ended up making a profit and is now considered one of the best animated films ever. That's probably why it's ranked at 139 on the 1001 movies you must see before you die list. The story should be familiar to most, but I was happy not only to see it properly for the first time, but also to show it to my kids. The story is fairly simple and very PV-esque, if you may, in terms of its seemingly simple teachings or morals, like go to school, don't talk to strangers, don't smoke, don't tell lies, but it works because of the charming innocence with which characters behave and interact. As an adult, there are some silly things that put my mind to work, like why would Geppetto send this puppet kid alone to school the morning after he is quote-unquote born, or why an anthropomorphic fox is interacting with people around town, but I understand it's a children's film, so I try to block my stupid rabbit hole mind. Besides, it's, it's fun to see Disney play with common tropes like the notion that foxes are cunning and sly, which was then kind of subverted in 2016's Utopia, also from Disney. Like other classic Disney films I've seen recently, the animation is very pretty for the time, very traditional and classic, with some instances where you can even see the brush strokes on the canvas. Finally, the simplicity of its teachings makes for a very satisfying ending where Pinocchio learns his lessons, saves Geppetto, and becomes a real boy. Now, let's just hope that my kids take those teachings to heart and behave themselves. A film with a primarily Hispanic, Latino cast The world was wide enough for both Hamilton and me. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control Who lives, who dies, who tells your story President Jefferson Had this category because of Hispanic Heritage Month, so I finally watched Hamilton, written and created by fellow Puerto Rican Lin-Manuel Miranda. So for anyone that has been living under a rock for the last three or four years, the musical follows the life of founding father Alexander Hamilton, from a displaced orphan to one of the most significant figures in the history of the United States. Miranda uses modern music and a colorblind cast to tell Hamilton's story in a way that's fun, moving, thought-provoking, and immensely memorable. My wife and I had tried to see this about a month ago when we got our Disney Plus subscription, but after 20 minutes it just stopped, 
Not sure if it was our shitty internet connection or the fact that everybody in the world was seeing it, but the thing is that everybody in the world must see it. It's quite impressive from almost every aspect, from the way that Miranda stumbled on that biography on an airport, to how the story resonated with his own personal story as a displaced Puerto Rican, or how the story still resonates with the state of the US right now. And the way that Miranda translates that to not only lyrics and music, but lyrics and music that rhyme so flawlessly are easy to understand, but are also fun to listen to, it's amazing. Add to that how he manages to cover different music styles and genres in the songs, with rap and hip hop being the predominant one, but clearly not the only one. One last time, who lives, who dies, who tells your story, have a clear gospel sound. The room where it happened is jazzy, helpless, say no to this, and the Skylar sisters are more pop, and what did I miss is more rock. I also love the way Miranda seamlessly manages to sneak these little callbacks to his own songs through reprises. For example, the introductory song Alexander Hamilton is repeated at the opening of each act to help establish where the lead character is at the moment, while the King George songs point out in what state are the relations between the colonies and Great Britain in each act. But the thing is that Miranda also does these little callbacks through some lyrics and lines that are effortlessly dropped in the middle of others which make for a great cohesive listen, but also help to keep the main themes up front. For example, all the times you hear the rise up chant, or every time they go back to the helpless. But the most notable example is one of the first lines and songs in the musical, I am not thrown away my shot which not only embodies Hamilton's attitude at the moment to seize an opportunity, but also serves as a foreshadowing of his final fate. Judging from all the success he has had before and after Hamilton, it's evident that Miranda is not throwing away his shot. A film with the word dance in its title. I know this is last minute, but will you please go to the prom with me? Ew, get lost, Jimmy. Why is this happening? End of the world. God's flushing the toilet. If you don't stop those things from getting to the prom, then our world is over. National Dance Day is September 19, which is why I wanted to see something with the word dance in its title. My friend Brian Clarkson mentioned this independent zombie film called Dance of the Dead, which was released in 2008, so I decided to give it a shot. The film follows a group of high school friends in the Georgia suburbs that have to deal with the unexpected rise of the living dead as they prepare for the prom dance. The film was independently produced and directed by Greg Bishop, and after filming, it was handpicked by Sam Raimi for distribution. And despite some expected amateurishness, mostly in some performances and some special effects, it still boasts some decent production values and overall competency in its technical execution. The script is a bit thin, the dialogue is spotty, and the story is mostly predictable, but the writer and director still manage to hit the necessary beats to make this enjoyable, and they do balance the humor and gore fairly well. The film is also held by likable characters, from the outcast delivery boy played by Jared Kuznets to the goofy class nerd played by Chandler Darby, most of them are characters that you can easily root for. Like my friend Brian told me on Twitter, the film has its heart in the right place, despite its flaws. Any film that starts with the letters Q or R. Damn the pictures, and the wireless, and the office. I want some life. Life, I tell you. Like that. I want some of the good things of life. Money. Why should you be able to spend less on yourself than some women do on their rotten poodles? Why shouldn't you have a hairdresser and a lady's maid? 
Why, Fred, I never expect those things. No, that's just it. The good little women like you don't want enough. For this category, I saw Alfred Hitchcock's Rich and Strange from 1931. It's my 38 Hitchcock film, but one of the few I've seen from his early 1930s period. The film follows Fred and Emily, played by Henry Kendall and John Barry, a struggling middle-class couple that decide to take a trip around the world after receiving an advanced inheritance, only to find themselves drifting apart from each other and into the arms of others. The film isn't your typical Hitchcockian suspense thriller, but rather a romantic drama that deals with the struggles of married couples. This is a theme that Hitchcock dealt a lot with during his early silent films, for example The Ring, Easy Beer 2, The Manxman, sometimes successfully and others not so much. Rich and Strange is far from perfect, but I'd say he mostly succeeds in portraying the distancing between the couple in a believable way. The performances from both Kendall and Barry are pretty solid, and so are the performances from their two respective paramours. For casual viewers, your enjoyment will depend on your tolerance of early talkies that still feel or look like silent films. There are significant portions of the film where there is no dialogue, and many argue that this was the reason why the film was not successful, but I really didn't mind that. I thought the pace was okay for most of its duration, but found it also about 10-20 minutes too long, with a climatic moment as the ship therein starts to sink, a moment that, although probably metaphorical, I don't think was necessary necessary, or at least lack subtlety. However, for Hitchcock fans and completists, there are a few visual tricks that he pulls to make the film worth a watch, and the set design and production values are pretty good. A film based on or featuring video games prominently. This microchip doesn't belong here. What? Take a look. Whoever put this in really knew what he was doing. Look at those connections. It could be used to store information, input output kind of information government plans maybe it could be anything really i'll tell you one thing whoever put this in really went through a lot of trouble think he can break the code yeah, the key is how to get to it i got an idea chose this category because of National Video Game Day, which was September 12th, and went with 1984's Cloak and Dagger. The film follows Davy Osborne, played by Henry Thomas, a young boy that is coping with the death of his mother by talking and playing with his imaginary friend, super spy Jack Flack, played by Dabney Coleman, much to the dismay of his father, who's also played by Coleman. When he finds himself in the middle of a real-life espionage conspiracy, nobody believes him and Davy has to trust his own instincts to protect himself, his family and friends. This is a film I'm pretty sure I saw back in the 80s, but I literally didn't remember anything, so it was as if I had never seen it. It's interesting to see that despite the notable tie-in to the real Atari arcade game of the same name, the film barely features it on screen, but I think it's better that the film focus on its plot and characters than to any video game mechanics. Also, for a PG film supposedly marketed to children, it is fairly thrilling in its action and violence. The film doesn't necessarily feel like a quote-unquote family film, but rather like a toned-down thriller. I wasn't bothered by it, but anybody that thinks about showing it to their children should take it into consideration. Maybe it won't matter that much, but just so you know. In that respect, 
I think there is a bit of a muddled message as far as the use of violence go. Although his imaginary friend urges him to use violence, Davy is hesitant, but when he finally does, his reasoning to use it clashes a bit with his subsequent reaction. Moreover, the film doesn't really dwell that much into how Davy feels. I wish they would have delved a bit more into his psyche, as well as his relationship with his father. As it is, we only get a pretty good interaction between them in the first act and then the ending. If they had given a bit more attention to the relationship, I think the ending would have been more effective. But for what it's worth, it seems that not everybody agrees with me. I was reading a 2012 interview with Dabney Coleman where he says how often he is approached by people thanking him for playing Jack Flack. You don't know what that movie means to my son and me, or I saw it with my dad and that movie was very important in my life, which is very nice to know. It's worth mentioning that both Thomas and Coleman are pretty good in their performances, despite the limitations of the script. Coleman in particular is pretty good in his dual role as Davy's father and Jack Flack, and for both performances he uses different postures and different tones of voice. It reminded me of Christopher Reeve playing Clark Kent and Superman. It's pretty good. Overall, I think it was a fun ride. That's it for now. We're obviously still halfway through September, so these are the eight categories I still have pending. A science fiction film, a film with the word fall or autumn in its title, a film primarily set in the workplace, a film from Mexico, a film featuring Native American characters, a film from Robert Bresson, and a film with a question in its title. If any of you have any recommendations you'd like to share for any of these, let me know. You can look me up on Twitter at TIFFCGT, T-H-I-E-F-C-G-T, or on Letterboxd as TIFF12. In addition, feel free to let me know your thoughts on the podcast or your opinions of the films I've discussed. Also, remember to like, follow, and share the link. That's all for episode 21 of TIFF's Monthly Movie Loot. Thanks to everyone for listening. Have a great weekend, everybody. Hey, you.